0: overthinking it podcast episode 37 Listeners, welcome to the Overthinking It podcast. This is the podcast of the website that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. This week, I am your host, Mark Lee. You heard that right. Mark Lee, Matt Rather, is uh, not on an Overthinking It retreat, like I've been saying. I think it's time to fess up, guys, that uh, the writers rebelled. We fired Rather. He is no longer with us. So... um, I hope you've enjoyed listening to Rather anymore, but uh, Rather is just going to have to listen to this on the other side, just like um, he's always done. Now, there is, of course, the possibility that Rather is going to rise from the grave, strike us back down into our place, and then you'll hear him back on the the hosting chair in future podcasts. But for now, just trust me. We fired Rather, he's gone, and we are in total control. You know who else is
1: fired? I say bloodless coup. So it it adds up to the same thing.
0: There's such a fine line. Uh, the re- revolution of the proletariat can you really call us the proletariat a, there was a little blood let's be honest. yeah
1: i mean well when i say bloodless i mean that we cleaned up all the blood and that it came out of of the you know the clothes so that like you know the end product was basically bloodless but i mean at the time there was blood yeah
0: yeah well even when you wash out the blood i mean it's got to go somewhere right conservation of mass matter and everything
1: i suppose you know I always wondered about that when people are like oh we have to conserve water where's all the water going you know it it's goes to the be water somewhere.
0: filtration plant and then it gets filtered and then the waste goes somewhere and so then the clean water goes conserve, back into the system we
1: have to conserve water because it's not like it's escaping
0: you well, know it's, yeah. some, it's somewhere well we can we can discuss water on on a perhaps a future podcast but what you're hearing now is our overthinking of panelists uh from new york new york mr matthew blinky how are you doing I'm doing OK. And here's another question. What
1: about when the economy <laughs> bad? somebody somebody's got all the money, right? It's not like all the money, like burned up in a big bonfire that the Joker said on the pier.
0: You it's, well, I mean? it's kind of like Bernie Madoff, right? I mean, like he spent it on a lot of stuff. He's got some fungible assets which are being reacquisition, but it's only a small fraction what they what they're able to kind of reacquire of his wealth is only a small fraction of what he took from investors.
1: But, like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just a simple... I'm a caveman. I fell into some ice. It got thawed out 10,000 years later. I don't know much of this crazy, crazy world. But if, like, we're all poorer, doesn't that mean that there have to be an equal number of people somewhere else that are now richer?
2: When you put no, it, because our, our economy is based on a zero-sum game, and I don't mean that in the sense of, like, uh, game theory, but actually we're just... We're, we're working quickly towards a zero-sum of our economy.
0: That's depressing. So, those cheery thoughts are coming from Washington, D.C., in the form of Josh McNeil. How are you doing, Josh? I'm really depressed, Mark. I knew that. Well, we're going to get back to the economy in a second. But before we do so, um, I wanted to give Watchmen its final uh, overthinking on the podcast. There's maybe a couple more articles coming out on the website. But um, we talked about Watchmen for, I think, the entirety of two podcasts in a row. So uh, podcast listeners who are tired of Watchmen, and I completely understand that, you just have to bear with us for a little bit more of overthinking on this, uh, the first big movies of 2009, and then we're going to move on with our lives onto bigger and more important things. But um, to just recap the most latest in Watchmen news, um, its box office for the second weekend tanked by about two-thirds. I think people are already started talking about it as a disappointment. And kind of anticipation of this, the screenwriter, David Hayter, essentially sent out a letter pleading to the fanboys, please come out and see this movie again to save it from financial ruin. Because if you don't, then they're not going to, um, the studio, big studios are going to be afraid to make these kinds of movies, um, movies that make you with balls and brains, as he puts it, um, that the studios aren't going to want to make these kind of movies again um, because of its poor financial performance. So with all that kind of, uh, you know, Watchmen fading off the map kind of stuff, I want to ask the panelists final thoughts on the watchmen on its on its uh, critical reception on the fan reception bad word of mouth all these different things i'm um, going first to matthew blinky
1: it seems like an amazing thing for for David Hader to say. I mean, first of all because he's saying I mean, he's basically coming out and being like, My movie is so visionary and so much better than anything else that Hollywood normally makes that like you all have a duty to support it so that people continue to make work as brilliant as what I've done. But but it's also I think the more egotistical thing is him almost assuming that he has the power through his words alone to single-handedly boost the box office by requesting that it be boosted. You know what I mean? Like, like just by, by feeling that he can make any difference by telling the internet community to go in and put more money into the movie that they weren't yes. otherwise going to put right. into it. All
0: the fanboys I mean, go out see it again. like,
1: like an, a, an incredibly egotistical thing to think.
0: I would, I would, I would agree with you. Um, the other, the other thought I had on this was essentially that, um, if you're depending on, on the fanboys to go out and see it a second and third time to keep the movie afloat, you're completely missing the point of making a movie, which is that, you know, you don't make a movie for 20 people to see 40 billion times. You make a movie for a lot of people to see once, maybe twice if they super, super loved it. So yeah, I mean, David Hayer you know, hate to say asking it, but people
1: to cheat. He's asking, you know, <laughs> yeah. the, the movie's been issued. If people want to go see it, they're going to go see it. If people want to go see it again, they'll see it again. He's asking people to go see it, even if they don't want to see it in order to like trick other people into thinking it's more popular than it really is. It's, uh, if you take it that that to that
0: extreme, it's absolutely. A
1: bizarre thing to ask. By the way, I don't know if everyone knows D- David Hayter is sort of an interesting Hollywood character who has two. Very successful, mutually exclusive careers. Um, he he has limited credits as a screenwriter. He wrote his very first credit was he wrote X Men. He's the sole credited writer on the X Men, which I think we all liked. Oh, wow. um, but then the, his next credit was on um, uh, as the co-writer of the Scorpion King, which nobody liked. But then he was also a co-writer the next year on X Men Two which, you know, was even better than X-Men, so sort of a mixed bag. Then Watchmen is his first product that, um, you know, he's credited as a writer since X-Men 2. Um, so, I mean, certainly like a spotty record as a screenwriter, but he is also the, the voice, uh, speaking of the internet fanboys, he is the voice of uh, Solid Snake in the Metal Gear Solid series.
0: So maybe he should have used the Solid Snake persona to tell all the fanboys to go out and see Watchmen. That might have been more effective. Solid Snake says. I don't know.
1: It's, it's interesting because, like, you usually don't think of, like, screenwriters as being very, like, intimidating people. But and, and my limited familiarity with, you know, the, the Metal Gear games, you know, Solid Snake is kind of like a very grizzled, um, you know, almost like a, a Clint Eastwood-type character. So if he if – uh, you know, I almost feel like he should have, like, gone on the internet wearing, like, an eye patch and, like, some sort of skin-tight camouflage suit. And like commanded, you know, all those who the, care for liberty and freedom. Does,
0: Snals, <laughs> does Solid Snake give inspirational speeches like that?
1: I don't know. I, I feel like Solid Snake is not so much a like speechifier as like a like a uh, a guy who hides under cardboard boxes. Yeah. You know, he's if anything, he does the opposite of speeches, which is that he sneaks yeah. from place to yeah. place. You, you know, who,
0: you know who does the opposite of inspirational speeches in the video, in the video game context. Is the, char- the the protagonist from Half Life, Gordon Freeman, who literally has no lines of dialogue, even though people uh, non-player characters are interacting with Gordon Freeman constantly?
1: That that actually is an interesting uh, comparison because he he does become an inspirational character. Yeah, I, he does. I, I played like Half Life 2, and he sort of becomes a sort of you know like people people uh, try to help him and rally to him and like look to him as like their only hope, even though he never says anything. And all he pretty much does is like
0: shoot people. Yeah, pretty much. Um, My last thought kind of on Watchmen is that um, I've, you know, Twittered and commented about this in general is that I liked it. um, But in further reflection, I've decided it wasn't a good movie. And in addition to that, I will say also this, um, it was successful in an adaptation in that it got a tremendous amount of the movie of the graphic novel into uh onto the screen but at the end of the day it was a failure in an adaptation in that it was undone by the graphic novel structure and the pacing of the graphic novel which made the pacing of the movie bad slow and not enjoyable to people who just didn't already you know, who weren't already clued in on the graphic novel. That's my those are my last thoughts on, on Watchmen. Uh Josh or Matt, any thoughts on that?
2: Well, I, I come not to praise Watchmen but to bury it. <laughs> well the, said. I th- I'm gonna kinda of disagree with you on that. I thought it was actually a a pretty solid movie. And it was it was long and it was complex and if you compare it not to other superhero movies, but to other kind of like three hour multi-character films. I'm thinking of things like Magnolia um, is the first one that comes to mind for some reason. Um, it's actually, a, it fits kind of better in that genre and works in that genre and I think its box office numbers actually more reflect that genre than they do the X-Men's, the Spider-Man's of the world. Um, it may not have made the money that they were hoping for in the, in the box office, but I think you're going to see when it gets to DVD. When you tie in, um, you know, all the money it's going to make from the Black Freighter uh, DVD that they're going to sell when you include the, the toys and all of that, it's going to make money. And it may not, you know, I understand the screenwriter's fears, and I know why, you know, I kind of also disagree that it was arrogant of him to do this. I mean, it was his creation. And if 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 we'd all made a piece of art, we would do everything we could to make it as successful as possible. I, I don't really blame him for that. Um so I think ultimately I don't think it will be seen as a failure. I think it will be a sort of mid-range hit. It's not going da- to make it harder for them to make these movies, but it's not going to make it easier either.
0: I think what it is going to make it um, harder to do or rather that screenwriters will need to try harder at is when at, at adapting something like this to give it a wider appeal. And that's, um, not to but, say but I mean, like,
1: but that's exactly what you, you didn't want, right? I mean, like, like, would you really feel better now if they had somehow tarted up Watchmen to make it more of like a feel good, uh, rock'em sock'em superhero? No, movie? no, that's I, not, that's exactly. not what I, what
0: I mean by like making, giving it a wider appeal It's not supposed to, you know, like the good guys are supposed to win at the end of the day. I mean, certainly that is, you know, that in, in and of itself, the fact that the movie, the ending is dark and, and super depressing, um, that is a departure from the regular knock knock him, drop him superhero movie, but um just the feeling that I got from the whole thing that it was just constructed for people um who were for, who first for the people who knew the story already that that was a mistake i mean I, I think that a lot of I did a lot of different reviews on this and that some people say that they did an amazingly good job of setting it up for people who weren't am um, familiar with the story already, but, um, you know, I can't point to anything specifically how they could have made this more accessible, but I thought just thought it wasn't accessible.
1: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Josh where it's like Watchmen is only a, a disappointment if you expected it to to do the kind of business that, you know, like a, a, a generic Hollywood superhero movie did, but it, it, it's never I don't think anyone who read Watchmen and then imagined it becoming a movie that it was going to have that kind of pop appeal. I mean, it's 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 an indie comic book, and it's it really is more of an indie movie. And and if you ask me, that the numbers seem about right, where it's like it had a big opening business because all the people, it was like twenty years of pent up demand to see it. You know, all came out in the first weekend, and then I I don't think it's ever going to be the kind of mainstream movie that like X Men was, and nor should it.
0: Hold on a second. Hold on a second. A few things. First of all, that um, I think the people who put this movie together have spend one hundred thirty million dollars. On the budget, maybe including or not including the massive, massive publicity and marketing budget, I think they were expecting huge returns on it. And no, so, I, I think
1: they were, and I think I think that's the the puzzling thing. It's not so much discussing like why Watchmen didn't make more money. I think we should be discussing why they thought that Watchmen was going to like have you know like like make one hundred and fifty
0: million dollars in its first two weeks of release. So that may have been absolutely an incorrect assumption on the parts of I guess what Warner Brothers and Paramount. But I want to get back to you mentioned you used an interesting word there to describe the graphic novel and the movie as indie. Independent somehow like you know. Yeah,
1: well, I, mean, I think I think they they uh, Josh what's the what's the label on the comic book is it Vertigo or
2: I think it's, it was pre-Vertigo. I think it's
0: just DC you'll find my copy. Uh, so all
1: right, so, it, so it was I mean the, so technically it's not an indie comic book it's from one of the majors.
0: But you're using indie kind of in the like the the royal indie, the royal wee, the war, the royal indie. It's it's, I mean, it's produced by I mean, a major I mean, thing but it has an indie feel.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd certainly say that it has an indie I, I I would say that like, you know, when the when the Watchmen comic book came out I don't think that the people who published it expected it to do the kind of numbers that, like, Superman does. I think they thought that it was going to be for, like, a niche audience of people that like sort of, like, brainy comic books, you know? And it it was never supposed to be, like, you know, a big pop spectacular.
0: But I would say that even though this this graphic novel, you know, obviously sold a bazillion copies and is really... You know, even before the movie had captured a lot of the imagination of the public, that public, though, still is a niche audience. It's just that that niche audience happens to be pretty big, the geek niche audience. And that at the end of the day, the people that are going to come out to see uh, that movie designed for that geek uh, niche audience is not going to produce the massive box office numbers that you would have seen from something like The Dark Knight or Spider-Man. And if the movie makers thought that it would have, then I think that might have been their mistake.
1: What did the Dark Knight make? Oh, in total, yeah. it was it was over over five hundred, I think, domestic. Wow. I mean, it was for a while. People were thinking it could give Titanic a run for its money. It didn't quite get up there, which is really amazing if you think about it. It's been more than ten years since Titanic, and in non-adjusted dollars, it's still. If you adjust the, if you adjust the dollars, it seems even more. Amazing an achievement it would probably be up above eight hundred million in today's dollars.
0: Well, going back to Titanic, um, I'm remembering um, females of a certain demographic who really went out to see that one multiple, multiple times.
2: My high school girlfriend and I had to go see it multiple, multiple, multiple can, times.
0: Can, can you quantify that? Three times?
2: Uh, I think four. That's intense. It was like half a day of my life spent watching that movie. And I, th- it's, I actually think it's a pretty well done movie, but still.
1: By the way, uh, Josh, the, the, the figure is uh, $533 million domestic.
2: Okay, well, even that, even that. So that's, that's roughly 60 million people then who saw it. There were 60 million tickets sold. Ballpark. So that's one, what's that, one-fifth yeah. of a the fifth. U.S. population. Um, assume that a lot of people saw it twice. Right. Maybe it's down to, like, a sixth of the U.S. population. So even that's kind of a niche. I mean, there's nothing that appeals to everyone, right? Even, the, like, among the most popular movies ever made only caught a sixth of the population. So, but roughly about 10 million people then saw Watchmen. That's, you know, I don't know if you call that a niche, Maybe
0: you do.
1: I I Watchmen, in a way, may have overperformed because I think they they advertised it so much in a way. I think a bunch of people went to the theater uh, expecting it to be a generic superhero movie, and and were sort of like surprised and horrified that it was this sort of um, very dark, meandering, um, musing on you know what it is to be a superhero and the limits of that. Kind of hero, heroism, you know, I mean, like, like before it came out, I remember talking on the, on the podcast about whether the advertising campaign was misleading, which was these sort of very heroic, sh- these heroes in these sort of like power pose can you know, and it, and it looked, you know, just like, you know, like an Iron Man poster where, you know, Iron Man is just looking cool in his costume. And I don't know what what uh, an Alan Moore designed Watchmen poster would be, but it would probably have been more of just sort of like this this image of like a dirty, you know, rainstreeped street, you know, with like blood in the gutters or I don't know, just some something that like you know conjures this sort of yep. foreboding without without making it seem like this is a this is a story about like people who kick ass
0: because that's not what really what it's about. Sure, and I think that's you know when people talk about the bad word of mouth. Which I don't I don't think anybody can, you know, truly quantify or prove beyond a doubt that the movie is getting bad word of mouth. But I think the reasoning behind that is yes, people went into it thinking that it was going to be a typical superhero movie, were totally perplexed and perhaps even bored by it and um you know, have told everyone else that they didn't like it, that they didn't get it. And so no one's going to see it anymore.
1: There's little to hang this- your hat. I mean it's like if you don't love the story, what do you come out feeling like? Oh, there's this like really amazing scene in Watchmen where I mean, I, I hate to be down on it because the thing is like you know I I like I like Watchmen. I didn't love it, but it doesn't have these big set pieces that that maybe lead to good word of mouth. It's sort of like I mean, in a in a way, now that you throw it out there, Magnolia is kind of like a good comparison where it's like it's this sort of interesting tapestry um, that like, you know, it, it, it works. It does sort of conjure something, but it's, it's, um, it's, your it's, ultimate,
2: it's, your ultimate takeaway is what the fuck was up with the frogs?
1: Yeah. And it, and it's sort of like, sort of like both with Magnolia and Watchmen, maybe it's difficult to find like one moment to cheer for where it's like, you think about Iron Man and like, you know, you could be like, the guy puts on a suit and flies. He goes, there's a lot of, there's a lot of moments. Well, pleasing to cheer things. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's like funny the, it, like it's dark night. There's a lot of awesome things that happen in the dark night. I'm not saying there aren't awesome things that happen in Watchmen, but like I'm not sure there are a lot of I mean the the only the only moment in Watchmen that I really and I was in like a packed opening night house. So this is like a crowd that's ready to cheer for things. And people definitely uh when Rorschach is in prison, and he he burns the guy with the hot oil, you know, people were like <laughs> people, And in a way, I mean it's a horrific moment and I'm not Sure that Alan Moore wants us to cheer for that, but I think it's 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 a maybe a testament to how much people wanted to react to Watchmen and the way you react to a normal superhero movie, where they see a guy you know committed act of violence against a criminal, and everyone's like, "Yeah, Rorschach, woo woo woo." Oof. You know, even though that that's not that's not necessarily, I don't I don't know. I mean, you know, I think I think
0: I, I think maybe, you're really <laughs> hitting on on that right there. It yeah. really is missing those rah rah. Moments, Because they're just not there. They're not in the story. Now, just no, one quick aside. It's, it's, it's funny you it's mentioned it's story Magn- about
1: how, like, you know, that, that maybe traditional heroes are, are, are not up to the challenges of, like, you know, the real problems that face the world.
0: Agreed. Now, just a quick aside. It's funny you mentioned you're mentioning Magnolia because that is the one movie that I've walked out of. To really? be fair, I w- got into it for free because a friend of mine was working in a movie theater. Um, so it's not like I had, you know, put money up for it. But about a third of the way through, I was like, I, I'm wasting my time here. I'm leaving. It's just because Amy Mann killed your puppy when you were seven. <laughs> How did you know? And why did you have to bring that up on the podcast?
1: Mark, have you not seen it since?
0: No, I never made it through the whole thing.
1: I mean, I, 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 honestly, it's, I really like it. You know, it's not... I, I, I so, yeah, I'd be
0: willing to give it a it's second chance. one of chance. my favorite
1: Paul Thomas Anderson movies. I, I'd watch, you know, There Will Be Blood and, and Boogie Nights before I watch that again. But, I mean, you know, I thought, I thought it was a very interesting film with some great... I mean, it's got a fantastic cast.
0: Tom Cruise. You
1: know, I, it's one of, one of the more... Even if you're not a fan of Tom Cruise, it's hard not to like Tom Cruise in that movie. But I'm sure there will be people in the comments who don't.
0: Yeah. Now, who? Now that's maybe they that would have helped Watchmen if they'd put Tom Cruise in it. Well, probably not, actually.
1: Who? I don't know. I mean, I, it depends after post-Tropic uh, Thunder. Is Tom Cruise, you know, are people ready to like him again? He and Mel Gibson should do like a movie together. <laughs> where, like, they're both sort of like formal, former box office darlings who like have their sort of reputations tarnished. And uh, maybe they can well, help each other
0: out. They can be in the Watchmen prequel. Have people been talking about this? God, I hope not. No, I, <laughs> I, I, I highly doubt. I mean, if there were there was such a small chance of that happening before, you know, Watchmen's money or lack thereof start returns started to come in, and now it's box office performance is virtually guaranteed that there will not be. So maybe in that respect, that it's a success. It's guaranteed yeah. that no one's going to try to cash in with a crappy sequel or prequel. Did
2: yeah, you guys? I'm- did you guys see the Saturday morning cartoon? Oh thing? yeah. Yeah. I mean that that really it was a success
0: in that it wasn't that. That the movie was not that.
2: Yeah, just to wrap up, that was how it was successful, was not being that.
0: So it was a very it was a very costly success, I guess is, is what we're is what we're getting at. Um, so
2: it, was World War Two. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Any other final yeah. thoughts on Watchmen before we uh before we bury it?
1: I, I I don't know. I mean, I think maybe people, because of the success of 300, you know, the, the director's previous movie, thought that Watchmen would do that kind of business. But 300 is a lot – it's a lot – maybe easier to sell. It's a simpler Certainly. story.
0: You get back that, to the story, you know, right? Yeah. The victory. Yeah, it's a, a simpler story for.
1: with, like, you know, that, that, that leaves you, you know, feeling pumped. I, I still think, like, you know, 300 is, like, you know, every high school football team in the country – Will like you know get together to watch that movie from like you know for the next
0: twenty years, so what happens when a high school football team gets together to watch the Watchmen before a big game
1: i don't, I think they just don't even bother playing because they're like <laughs> what's the point
0: Maybe does it justify like uh cheating or doing something horrific to the opposing team for the for <laughs> the for the good of <laughs> of their team and their fans
1: Nothing good it's definitely not a not not a movie that that makes uh,
0: physical violence yeah. seem like
1: like you know the the way to—I don't know. I mean, I—I—I I, I feel a little bit bad for David Hayter and, um, you know, the the that his his friends who made the movie because I feel like they they did a very difficult job and did it well. But I also feel that, like you know, it wasn't I don't necessarily nasty. feel like I don't necessarily feel like Watchmen got a raw deal with the money it's made. I don't feel like it's there are some movies that come out and you feel sad they didn't make more movie. Like for instance, and I know this is out of left field, uh, the Chronicles of Riddick. <laughs> I, was I wanted that to make a lot of money because I wanted to see the Chronicles of Riddick too. Like the, or perhaps the Annals the, the Annals of Riddick.
0: <laughs> well, they made the not Annals the, of Riddick not too, but the Annals of Riddick, I repeat.
1: <laughs> Not the and um and you know, but but this is one of those movies that I feel like you know the American public was unjust to it by not patronizing it more.
0: There you have it. So, uh, the Watchmen and Chronicles of Riddick, two of a kind. You heard it here on over the Overthinking It podcast. Uh, <laughs> moving on to uh, kind of the other big news in the popular culture this week is the the epic showdown. The Clash of Titans, if you were, between Jim Cramer, the host of CNBC's Mad Money show, and Jon Stewart on The Daily Show. Now, to give the the listeners a little bit of background, in case uh, you were, say, living under a rock and not reading the internets and the Twitters this week... Um, The Daily Show started to basically beat up on CNBC because uh, one of the CNBC personalities was supposed to show up on the show, canceled at the last minute, and then The Daily Show basically, my understanding of it is that they took that opportunity to start running with um, the, the CNBC bashing. And calling them out for being essentially complicit and asleep at the at the wheel during the financial bubble of the 2000s um, right up until the crash, um, so this all culminated with uh, with Jim Kramer showing up as a guest on John Stewart's show, and not surprisingly, John Stewart just wiped the floor with Jim Kramer. Um, no big surprises there, but there's been a lot of talk. Um, on the interwebs about the appropriateness of it, the kind of the strangeness of John Stewart getting all preachy and serious when you know, and as he will certainly, John Stewart himself will acknowledge that he at the end of the day is a comedian on a sh- channel that is Comedy Central. So I wanted to open this up to the panel, what they thought about the, the, the Kramer versus Stewart interview and maybe the Daily Show's relevance in the news and the popular culture these days in general.
1: What does
0: well, the panel they- think?
2: the first piece that stuart did on on cnbc and just kind of comparing what you know how they had completely missed every signal of the of the financial meltdown and how they had essentially pushed the american people into a lot of really bad decisions was one of the best sort of examples of montage that that they've ever done which is i think really high praise is that
0: the one uh, just to jump in quick look josh that's the one we're at the end where they're interviewing one of the guys who was eventually exposed for doing a ponzi scheme and the, essentially the interview is how does it feel to be a billionaire and the, yeah. and the guy says it feels pretty good that's the one yeah that was pretty devastating
2: it's it's just it's
0: brilliant go youtube
2: it it's it's pretty short i think it's three or four minutes and it's just it's really a fantastic critique of the media as a whole, um, specifically the business media, and specifically on this issue, but I think it's something you know, it's something I would like every anybody connected with the media to go watch and you know ensure that they are not one day the subject of such an expose. Um, kind of what happened after was really interesting. The the fact that CNBC chose to defend itself was, I think, an, very awkwardly, by very the way, very awkwardly. But just the choice to do it was was odd because in many cases because they could have let it die they could have ignored it and it would have been one night on the daily show and as popular and as powerful as the daily show is that's still a very small percentage of the people that would have watched it but by responding to it they just made the story so huge that I don't know I haven't seen the ratings but I'm sure that the ratings for Kramer on on the show were just you know were staggering for the daily show
1: but thing, if you want to be cynical, what do you think the ratings for Kramer on Kramer were like last week? Yeah, there's that. You know that, that like you know some people would say you know there's no such thing as bad publicity. Maybe if the Daily Show attacks you, instead of ignoring it, letting it pass, you take on the Daily Show, even if you think you're going to lose, because like taking on the Daily Show and losing still means that like the blogosphere is talking about you nonstop. Um, now, but, but of course, the flip side of that is you look at what happened to Crossfire. Um, you yeah. know where where Stewart went on on Crossfire, um, basically said that he hates Crossfire, and I'm sort of wondering. You, you know, he's widely credited as like single handedly getting the show canceled. I don't think it works that way. I think if the show had made financial sense uh, sense to stay on the air, it would have stayed on the air. But you know, he was certainly a nail in the coffin.
2: Yeah, he was. He was just the last piece of that. Right. But, but it, it's certainly a, a kind of humiliating last act to that so,
0: particular play. So let, let me put, pose this question in a different way. So let's say, I think everyone kind of agrees, that Crossfire deserved to be buried. It was a crap show. Um, CNBC deserves a lot of criticism. Um, but was Stewart's treatment of Kramer fair? Was Stewart himself, like, grandstanding a little too much. Was he making Jim Cramer out to be some sort of more of a scapegoat and more responsible than he maybe he actually was for the general mess of things?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, look, let me let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Please do. I don't think any of us really know how Jim Cramer stock picks. If you take all of Jim Kramer's stock picks, if you'd based your portfolio on just him, would you have made money?
0: I think I saw a graph uh, that came out that someone put together, and you would have done pretty shittily really uh, and, they, they and quantify compared to everyone else in the market uh yeah i think so in fact
1: really okay well good because uh, my devil's advocate argument was going to be made that that what Kramer was complaining about is, like, well, he went through every episode that I've done over the last six months, and he picked the, the picks I made that went the worst. And, I mean, obviously, if you make predictions every day on TV, you're obviously going to make some wrong predictions. And, and Jim Kramer never says that all of his predictions are always 100% correct, although, you know, as Stewart pointed out, some of the advertising on his channel um, sort of implies that, that the CNBC slogan for him was, In Kramer We trust." Which is pretty, which is pretty ballsy if you think about it. I mean, it's it's basically replacing God with him.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: you know, and he presumably signed off on that at some point. But but yeah, I mean, like you could say, like it's easy. You know, in, in a way, it's easy to make anyone look foolish by doing what the Daily Show does, where like you know, like calling through everything they ever say, trying to find the silliest things they ever say and juxtaposing it with the worst thing you can find.
0: Right, and I would I would I'm kind of playing devil's advocate, keeping this going. Um, I would say that in a lot of ways CNBC you know, is not a root cause of anything, right? It is symptomatic of far worse problems in the market and regulation and in a society that just wants to believe in the fantasy of fast, cheap, free money. So we only have ourselves to blame. Jim Cramer is a reflection of ourselves, perhaps?
2: Well, you know, wh- wh- who wouldn't rather watch the business show with the guy who acts like a clown as opposed to, you know, two PhDs who sit there and discuss things that the average person doesn't understand?
0: Right. I imagine the Muriel uh, Murabini, the, the, the NYU economist who has been long predicting the, uh, the downturn, that a podcast um, or, or a TV show produced by him would not have gotten particularly high ratings.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly enjoyed watching uh, you know, like like Kramer Show. You know, I'm not a regular watcher of it, but, but I remember like the first time somebody told me about this show, and I watched it on TV, and it's it's amusing. It's it's fun watching him, like you know, because he is. You know a character and everything and it's and, and it gives you this sort of illusion that you're that you are getting inside information that you know more about stocks that like he dumbs everything down to the point where like you feel like you know wow, this stock stuff is pretty easy, you know even if you don 't actually invest, you feel like you 're smarter after having watched a show, so he 's a good uh entertainer
2: so uh, and that was uh, going back to Kind of the the culminate, culminate, is it culminatory interview the last interview with the two of them it was uh, it was really interesting to watch Kramer's kind of style in that interview like he was genuinely it's he was genuinely sad
0: um, he was not he talk- combative certainly he could have been far more combative but he wasn't wasn't
2: yeah and 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 none of that character that we kind of see in his show that that was so amusing none of that showed up. Except and, in the clips that Stewart would show.
0: But Stewart also and, showed the clips, not from Mad Money, but from uh, another show that he had done where he was just speaking very calmly and soberly. I think he was being interviewed in that one. He was being interviewed in that one. That's correct. So, the, you
2: know, and, and so you know clearly he's got an on-screen persona. And I don't, no, I don't think the persona is the problem. The persona is just the hook, right? Right. But, um... I don't know. I, like, I spent the whole time watching that interview, and I watched it twice, feeling bad for
0: Kramer. Um, I feel bad for him for, for a different reason though, because he shows up, Stewart is looking pretty sharp in his suit, and, and Kramer shows up, I think, as he does on Mad Money, with his sleeves rolled up, without a jacket, obviously, um, and a tie-on, looking kind of goofy, I gotta say. I'm not sure what he was thinking about that, but he, um, Stewart, uh, Really, look the part of the dignified, um, the, the dignified, respectable authority figure putting down this uh, this troublemaker.
2: That's true. Someone someone described him to me the other day as the Walter Cronkite of America right now. You know, he's the one who has to come in and sort of tell us when we're being naughty. He, he speaks
0: truth to power.
1: Hmm. You know what, uh, an interesting statistic I read about uh, CNBC. I'm actually reading this. Uh, if, you, if you Google uh, about CNBC, you get CNBC's uh, own, you know, about us page. Uh, let me read you a sentence. It says, according to a July 2000 sur- 2004 survey by Mendelssohn Media Research, the median household net worth of a CNBC Business Day viewer exceeds $1.2 million.
0: You said 2007?
1: No, 2004.
0: 2004. So
1: according you know, I I don't know exactly what that means the the CNBC Business Day viewer, but and 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 in a way it seems like an unbelievable statistic, but they're saying that the average person who is viewing CNBC during the day is worth more than 1.2 million it makes more than 1.2 million dollars a year.
0: Does that mean because they're watching it while they're at work? At a financial institution?
1: I I don't know. I mean it, but but it just I mean I think the the fact that they're bragging about that maybe says something about who the C N B C viewer is or, or who they're um who they're looking out for or speaking to that like it's supposed to it's a it's um it's a network that's that's supposed to like reaffirm the world view of the people who are already um wealthy, I guess you know it's like it's you know you you could argue that like the audience that they're trying to get and the audience that they that they have and that they're trying to entertain is an audience that already has money that has a substantial stake in like stocks and, and bonds. seeks to make
0: more money off of stocks and bonds and derivatives etc
1: i su- I suppose so that in, in a way it's it's it seems like an unbelievable statistic though that like it's it's hard to believe that any network has a viewership with the medium net 1.2. Maybe it's like Bill Gates loves CNBC, and his net worth alone pulls that <laughs> average so high well, up.
0: Well, to, to, if you're MSNBC, talking about... He, it, he
2: owns half of it.
0: Yeah. If, you're talking about, if you're talking about median, though, this. then uh, you know average, if you, if you do an average income, then yes, he would skew it way in the other direction. But a median, he's only a single point. Um, you're right. You're which is right, medi- determining the, 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 so. the median point.
1: I mean, you know, I'm reading right off the CNBC page, so I don't, I don't know what it means, but it seems somehow significant Whoa. to talk even like what, what, when, when Stewart is taking on CNBC, what CNBC is and who their, their audience is.
0: Sure. So I, I guess kind of, if you follow that logic then, um, you would say that CNBC, right, is making TV for rich people. Um, yeah. and if they had gone the route of, you know, trying to do hard hitting investigating journalism about the, um, you know, about how all this all this, this wealth building is just a bubble that its rich audience that is, you know, working in finance wouldn't want to see that and they would start – they would stop watching.
1: Right, or or if they got in the habit of grilling CEOs on their show, having CEOs on the show and asking them really hard questions. Well, the CEOs would stop showing
0: up on the show. Pod.
1: Yeah, is that – or, or – or in a, in a broader sense the people with money will feel that CNBC is not on their side that that CNBC their whole business model is based on uh being a friend to the investor and a friend to Wall Street
0: right the, the, you know there's this the, the local TV station is Fox 5 on your side right and no CNBC never says CNBC on your side right whereas a local news right. station will you know try to speak truth to power and uncover um you know, the types of abuses that uh, the the common person will appreciate to see. But CNBC has never been about that at all.
1: Right. I mean, CNBC, you know, in a broad sense, is supposed to be financial journalism. They're supposed to ask the hard questions and, and look inside the numbers and to figure out what companies are cooking their books and everything. But, you know, if you read the About Us page, you know, which is – I would guess that the, the whole existence of this page, which we should probably include a link to in the in the you know the, the posts of this podcast, uh, is probably for the benefit of advertisers to, to you know so they can figure out what CNBC is and who they're talking to. And um, it seems that like you know they're 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 not um, they they're, they're talking about the the people who already have the money. So in a way, it's financial journalism for people who have a stake in the status quo.
0: Agreed. Damn. And that's kind of scary.
1: I highly well, doubt. They also, Sorry, go ahead. They
2: also run into the same problem that, say, political reporters and, and, and networks that cover politics do, which is that, you know, you have to sort of maintain relationships with the people who are at the top or they're not going to let you cover them. You know, the, yeah. they're they, control. They give you access in return for positive coverage.
0: See, no, you, it's you, not yeah.
2: That, that's, it's, not that's a quid, actually, it's not a quid pro quo necessarily, but like you just – you you know you can't burn someone every day and then expect them to give you the inside scoop on something.
0: Right. So that's right, right, interesting. When CNBC you
1: say CNBC that – unless, unless CNBC was the only game in town for financial journalism, if they're interviewing the CEO of a company and they ask a really tough question and the guy you know is put on the spot – you know, and that's that's the soundbite that, like, everyone runs with that CEO will never be on CNBC again. And that, you know, hurt CNBC in the long run.
0: Right. So when we're saying this, this all sounds totally reasonable. And the funny thing is I'm thinking back to the interview, which I just saw before we started this podcast, is that Jim Cramer tried to defend himself by saying pretty much exactly that. John Stewart's retort is that basically is that's inexcusable and you should be asking the hard questions. And then the audience you knows, like, yay, rah, rah, Jon Stewart. And what well, I want to sh- get at there is that essentially that, um, you know, so John Stewart is a performer as well. He's manipulating his audience and uh, essentially using polemics to to get across his point, which is uh, obscuring perhaps a more nuanced view of what, you know, of how, of the, of the role of, of media and the fine line you have to to, to, to stand between um, the, the, the tricky bouncing game you have to play in between you know asking the hard hitting questions and keeping the access to the people in power.
1: Well, I in, mean, a, look, in look a perfect number of um, yeah, sorry, go on.
2: In a, in a perfect world, you'd have media that didn't need profit, right? Right. You'd have media that yes. could go out and say exactly what they wanted to say and and tell the you know unvarnished truth. That's exact, That's that's what we want. That's what would be best for the country. But like any sort of perfect world, it's just not going to happen. So, I mean, Storch's right. I don't argue with him at all. Um, And I think Kramer was just – but Kramer was sort of trying to explain the reality. uh, And that's rarely a popular thing to do.
1: I mean, in a way, we're we're all – you know, we're used to thinking of more media outlets as a positive thing, you know, more choice, more competition and everything. But in a way, if if you look at Republicans tending to grant the lion's share of their interviews to Fox News, a place where which they perceive is safe and a place which they perceive is like they're not going to have to be faced with tough questions. Um, you know, wh- whether that's an unfair perception or not, you know, I, I sort of wonder that, like, You look at um, Stewart or Colbert, you know, most Republican politicians are going to be very careful about going on that show unless they feel like it can't be avoided, you know, because they they just feel like there's there's no upside to it. And, And I wonder if you're facing a future in which, you know, the 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 politicians will only speak to the media outlets, which sort of like, you know, cater to their part of the political spectrum. Uh, And that's that's the sort of downside. Back in the day, when there was just three nightly newscasts, you know, like NBC, ABC, and CBS, you sort of, as a politician, didn't have the choice of boycotting, you know, you know, newscasts or newspapers because you didn't like their politics. Because there weren't that many games in town. Now you can get away with doing
0: it, and you can you can cherry pick your interviews. So we're creating essentially two competing echo chambers with Fox News, and on one side, and let's say MSNBC. And um, the Daily Show on the other side.
2: Well, yeah, well I, that's I that's, sort of that's been much played much. out perfectly in the Rush Limbaugh story of the last week. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the on the Republican side and on Rush's radio show himself, the sort of Rush leading the Republican Party thing has been a cheering point. You know, that's been a that's been a really positive story. It's featured prominently on his website. He talks about it every day on his show. Um, and for the hardcore who who like him. That's the story they want to hear. Whereas on MSNBC, you're seeing the videos from labor and from environmental groups talking about, you know, how his sort of control over the Republican policy choices is a bad thing. Um, that that's existed for a while. You are seeing it, I think, increase partly because of the yeah. That's the proliferation of of media availability. It's not just the TV networks. It's online. It's radio. It's it's everywhere. Um, it's and finding that middle has been increasingly pop, in, increasingly impossible. Uh, CNN has a bit of a stake to it, but kind of that's that's even sort of an issue by issue thing. Some issues they tend to lean pretty far to the right. Some tend, some they tend to lean to the left. But you know, I can't name an impartial source, and I kind of read news for a living.
0: Oh, I can overthinking it podcast episode political analysis. <laughs> <laughs> I think well, that, that's part of what we do, right? I mean, not to toot our, our own horn too much, but, you know, we, we, we bring a high level of scrutiny to popular culture, and one form of which is media and politics, which is essentially what we're doing here, right? This is not the place we're going to say, oh, yeah, you know, John Stewart really nailed it with with Kramer and, you know, CNBC is the worst thing ever, blah, blah. Um, we're bringing a level of scrutiny to it, and I, I would think I think and I would hope that our listeners appreciate that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we we try not to, but I mean, on the other hand, I I, I wonder how many McCain voters we have on the overthinking and staff.
0: And the staff I voted for McCain,
2: but I live in D.C., so I just did it for fun, really.
0: Well, let me bring up. Let me bring it's up. Right. It's funny you mentioned uh, McNeil, Josh. It's funny you mentioned Rush Limbaugh. I have a, a confession to make. Um, you, you probably tell where this is growing going. Uh, He's growing your father. Up, <laughs> that's not true. That's impossible. <laughs> that's impossible! Mega dittos, dude. Mark, you know. All right, you so you, you know where this is going, right, Josh? I grew up in Alabama. Alabama, a very conservative place. I used to listen to the Rush Limbaugh show. Not ironically.
2: Oh, thought, I, I listen to it all the time because it makes me, you know, angry and work harder. But, yeah, it's, it's a great show. The guy is a yeah, fantastic I, I listened
0: to it when I was a, like, dyed-in-the-wool conservative growing up, which I'm definitely not now. Um, I would, you know, like to consider myself to be... A, a moderate whatever or independent for whatever the hell that's worth, probably not a whole lot um but no, I used to listen to it um unironically thought that he had a lot of great points to make um and the, the, the to get to the point that we're talking about here is that I you know I've come from that sort of uh environment and background, a very conservative one, and now live and work in a very liberal one, New York city, so um if it's possible to try to see both sides of the thing, which is extraordinarily difficult to do, i try to do that. in other words, republicans republicans are people too. anyone back to differ?
1: no, i mean no, i I, mean, I think i think you're totally right and i think that um i i don't know. i mean i During the the campaign, uh, Obama actually spent like a whole week on Bill O'Reilly. It was like a five-part interview, and I read like a lot of uh, liberal blogs, and a lot of people were very critical of him because they felt that Fox News is a sham news station, and by going on Fox News and by talking to Bill O'Reilly, you legitimize him. Um, But I thought it was was pretty nice because if, if it becomes a case where no liberal politician will ever go on Fox News and you know Sarah Palin will only go on Fox News, then in a way it's like, how are you going to, I don't know, I guess I want to believe in the possibility that there can still be a place where conservatives and liberals can meet and have respectful discussion, and that it's not, that, that ideal is not completely off the table.
2: Well, this played out even before that Obama interview when they were planning the debates during the Democratic yes, primary. Yes, that's an
1: excellent point.
2: Um, you know, the blogosphere essentially won the fight to keep Fox from having a debate in the Democratic primary. And it was too bad. I mean, It was, it was two hours where the Democrats could have talked to people who talk straight without any sort of filter to people who don't usually listen to them.
0: Wait, what was the logic, though? Right. What was the justification? Okay. Was that like, you know, that uh, a Fox that News it? host was going to be like, you know, ask the Democratic candidates which Al-Qaeda personality was their favorite? Um, there was, you know, there was some sort of fear of that. There was basically,
2: I'm trying to remember what they, what they, <laughs> well, I mean, there were plenty of little,
1: little things that happened on Fox News that you could point to as, as evidence that it's not very biased. I don't know if this was before or after the whole thing where a Fox News commentator wondered whether Obama's uh, little gesture with his wife was a quote unquote terrorist fist jab. <laughs> And I mean that—that's just one of like you know. I'm sure during the campaign there were whole lists of little things that that Fox News you know anchors said in jest, off the cuff, you know, jokingly or not, uh, you know that that were sort of along the lines of like, oh, of course, Obama is the root of all evil, and won't somebody please shoot him and get this over with.
2: Which, to my mind, was the reason that you take seven of your kind of greatest thinkers and speakers and put them on stage for two hours and dominate Fox's airwaves for a night.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think he, you may be right, although at the same time I remember reading some of these very indignant posts and feeling like you should reward Fox News for uh, attacking and slandering your candidates, you know, 24 hours a day.
2: Both valid so, points. I, I, but what us see yeah i
1: see I see both sides of it but but at the same time, I'd like I, right now, I agree with you, but I'm not saying that during the campaign, I wasn't happy when Fox News lost the debate
0: okay <laughs> now, let's a, let's let's take a, a different uh, slightly different tack on this um, because I'm sure that the commenters are gonna have a lot to say about this, and every time the subject of politics comes up, as we know, you know the debate gets uh, difficult um. So I know it's getting this far in the podcast anyway.
2: I've never been as pissed off as I am about what you had to say about Watchmen, Mark.
0: <laughs> well, I've never been as pissed off about anything as what you had to say about what I had to say about the Watchmen. So there. you the, Them is fighting words. Think. Yeah. So we consider ourselves to be thoughtful, well, for lack of a better word, balanced individuals. We, do, we alone think that, yes. Yes. <laughs> How do we get the news? How does an overthinker? Get the news. How does an overthinker approach this uh, highly polarized environment and get at the truth as if there were a single truth to be gotten to? I'm going to start with Josh. How do you get your news?
2: Uh, Well, I have the TV on all day, every day, and I flip between the three cable channels. Those three uh, being Fox, CNN, MSNBC. The three that cover what I. Care about, and then uh, online I always start with the Drudge Report. It's very conservative, but it tends to be the you know best predictor of sort of what the big stories are going to be, uh, because you know half the journalists in the world start there too. Um, so it's a good place to start. And then for the other perspective, you know you go to the the liberal blogs the coast and those folks and if you look at those two web pages you pretty much know what's going on and what people are talking about
0: so do you look at that perspective of like i'm going to look at drudge and then I'm to look at the huffington post and then the reality is probably somewhere in between um well you know drudge
2: Drudge doesn't technically editorialize; he just sort of editorializes Very, by his choice of yeah. story, right? And how he um, frames everything. And, and yeah, and the t- and headlines. He he gets to he gets to write the headlines, and you know, usually you can read a Drudge headline and know exactly what the story is going to be about. You can know exactly how the liberals are going to respond to it. You almost don't even need to click through half the time. Um, yeah, agreed. But but it's you know it's good to look at because it's it's. It's a perspective. It's where you know, not half, but at this point, thirty percent of the country is coming from.
0: Yeah. Blinky, uh how does this overthinker get the news?
1: Uh, I use uh, Google Reader. I don't know if uh, all you guys are into that, but rather, rather got me hooked on it. Uh, it's you know something instead of like actually visiting all these websites. To constantly to see like ooh maybe they updated their page now how about now how about now you sort of sign oh, yeah. up for them and then whenever a new story comes I'm... through it's sent to one google uh page so you never have to leave the google verse i am totally with you but who what
0: uh, what what feeds are you reading then google oh, reader.
1: nothing too special uh new york times i love i i'm i'm big on political news so i read uh Wonket a lot and then I, I do the I do the daily costs, and then I, I tend to get my conservative perspective from an even more ravingly conservative source than Drudge. I go to redstate.com. Yeah. Which is like, you know, a really arch conservative site where like they'll 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 post serious posts about how, you know, isn't it suspicious that we've never seen Obama's birth certificate? It would be a shame if he turned out not to be a legal citizen of the United States. Somebody get on this right now. Yeah. You know, so I mean, I read, I read it. Sort of have to get to get actual conservative viewpoints, and have to just because I think it's amusing how right wing and out there some of the stuff is.
2: You know, a um, member of Congress introduced a bill about presidential birth certificates last week, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. No, and they were very, very excited about it on Red State. They're like, finally, somebody. You know, right? Whatever. There's always gonna It's it's interesting. Congress has skewed. The Republicans have have gone rightward. That all the all the moderates tend to have been weeded out in the last two elections, and so that like the people who are left, all they have to do is kiss up to the base, stick around. It's ever, you know, um, you know, uh, Arlen Specter, who's in big trouble. I I don't want to. I don't want to talk inside baseball, but I. It's interesting that like you know, when I write, I tend to write about like movies and pop culture. Uh, but like, you know, I'm much more interested in like reading the political gossip than like the movie gossip
0: <laughs> along those lines. Um, you know, I also write for this website, which is about pop culture, but the vast majority of my time spent on the web is reading about technology and gadgets. So I expect what Rather, you, what,
1: were, you, what do you do? Are you Engadget or Gizmodo
0: Engadget gadget, um, slash dot unofficial Apple web blog, lifehacker. Those yeah. get, me, get me through a solid uh, you know several hours of reading it for a, a day. But getting back to what we talked about in terms of when where – When you said those
2: get me, I was really worried about where that was going. <laughs> I, I think you guys are drawing a false dichotomy though uh, in saying that like, politics, and te- politics and technology are not pop culture. I mean they, they are now. Uh, in a very, uh, people look at them the same way. They are reported on the same way. They are experienced by the vast majority of people in the same way. Hmm. Um, I, I especially, you, yeah. you know, technology is, is inseparable from pop culture. You know, we watch TV shows on our iPhones. Um, it's it, the medium it is, is the message, right?
0: It is certainly it is certainly a different kind of pop culture than the creative works which we typically think of, right? Music, television, uh, movies. Is it? I mean, the the creators of it have become celebrities.
2: You know, we know more about. Steve jobs than we knew about any of the guys who invented the first computer, you know, the, it's all coming together. You know, the, the Silicon Valley guys That's are showing up point. on the same blogs as Paris Hilton.
0: Yeah. I, I was going to point to something about the artistry of something like a, mu- a mu- music, um, you know, or, or a television show. But then again, I'm looking at my amazingly well-crafted iPhone. And I think that is a piece of art as well.
1: It, I mean, you know, Josh, you might have something there. I think in a very real sense, I'm sort of like a fanboy for the Democratic Party that so like, you know, I, I, I root for them the way that, you know, like some people are really interested in like the Watchmen numbers and I'm sort of interested in like the DC gossip. And so it is sort of like a, a similar, you know, I, I get po- politics. And I guess it always has been though. I mean, I don't think it's anything new that that people look at politics as like an American sport. You know, I mean, like, you know, way back in like the, the, you know, you know, the, the early 19th century, like, you know, you'd go out and, and voting would be like a social event and like you'd go out to hear stump speeches and people would actually get up on stumps. And there'd be free beer as well. And give speeches while like everyone else drank beer and everything. So it was like, you know, it's always been sort of like entertainment as well as, you know, um, you know, statesmanship. Absolutely. So we're
0: definitely, you know, politics certainly a part of the pop culture which we scrutinize with more scrutiny than it deserves that was a uh, very well for poorly formed sentence uh, can we have rather back we should get rather back um let me let me try to start wrapping up here any final thoughts then on kramer versus stewart obviously uh, who won is there, was there a winner
1: I'm a little confused as to why Kramer went on, like what he expected to happen and like what his strategy was.
0: To boost his Be- ratings.
1: Because it does sort of seem like he he almost like went on there to lose as like a like a public yeah. like, flagellation. Like he felt like he owed it to the American people to like get beat up by Jon Stewart on national <laughs> T V. So I do I do sort of wonder if he just like felt guilty and he felt that like if Jon Stewart wanted to yell at him, he had no right to like hide.
2: Well, and, and to a, sen- in a sense, I think it kind of worked. It certainly worked on me. Um, when Stewart broke the, the cursing barrier, you know, which is pretty rare on his show, but when he started actually, you know, saying fuck you to this guy, it really, like, that was when my sympathy started to move to the other guy. Um, and I feel, I feel like, you know, Americans will forgive anything if you do a sort of mea culpa. And when Kramer went on and said, "You know, John, you're right. I should do that. I should be more aggressive in in denouncing these guys." I I think, you know, I for one was kind of ready. Was all right. Well, let's give him a shot. You know, yell at him in a month from now if he hasn't changed his ways, but let's let's see what he can do. Um, I feel like, yeah, he got spanked, but he ended up coming out looking better than he did before the interview
0: yeah and yeah, the- I
1: mean, in a, in a way it was sort of like a tai Chi approach where like you take your opponent 's energy and sort of like use it against him and and maybe like Kramer's was just, just let Stuart be the bad guy you know that like usually Kramer is like seen as the aggressive one and and by going by sort of like curling up in a fetal position, you make Stuart look like a bully
0: Yeah, i'm going to um, close i'm going to cl- kind of summarize this with the last Sentence from the New York Times article that po- that reported on this, which says that I think it encapsul- encapsulates what we've been saying pretty nicely. Uh, Mr. Stewart kept getting the last word, but Mr. Kramer may yet have had the last laugh. Sounds about right. No, no. I I, I don't, don't necessarily. necessarily I, know. <laughs> <laughs> no i have the Sorry. last laugh <laughs> And
1: i, I could yeah, laugh but i don't want to i don't want to keep this going i don't know <laughs> it remains to be seen whether the jim Cramers of the world survive this recession so we'll you know check with check with me in a year and let's see how like the jim kramer show is doing
0: okay well let's let's uh, check here that's everybody i'm writing that on my calendar now
1: yeah put it on put it on your calendar by the way happy Ides of march everybody
0: oh what, what do we got to do what how should we celebrate Ides of march should we? I don't know, we should stab stab people, or <laughs> let's get just on just... it then. Uh, listeners, it. you've heard your mandate. Uh, get out there and on those knives. Um, before you do so, though, <laughs> just... <laughs> let us know what you think about this podcast. You can, of course, leave a comment uh, on the on the posting on overthinking it. You can also uh, get in touch with us directly through the communications of technology that we have. You can email us at podcast at overthinking com. You can give us a phone call and leave a voice message in our mailbox at 28 log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. If you leave a voice message, we will play it back on the air and you will get a small piece of the Internet celebrity that we are keepers of and meet out to people who call in to our voice mailbox. So call in. Um, what else you can do is you can rate the podcast on iTunes. That helps other people find it. It uh, incrementally ra- uh, increases its rank and, and stature in iTunes as people search for podcasts about overthinking it. And I know there's a bunch out there. Um, something else you can do to help out the podcast is uh, hit that little survey button that's on the homepage right in the podcast section. Um, it's going to help us sell ads. And you know what that means, um, that we're going to sell out. And you know that we know that's what you want us to do. And lastly, yes,
1: don't... Yes, John Stewart
0: will yell at us. I can't wait. Definitely in our future. Um, until then, though, keep visiting us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site that subjects the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve.
1: It probably doesn't deserve... Echo. Josh? One day we'll get it right.
0: We We should probably like practice that.
1: Dessert.